Welcome to the men's global live stream. If you have a Bible, I want you to hold a couple spots. One in Mark chapter eight and the other in Hebrews chapter 11. If you're joining us for the first time or if you're just coming back for this next exciting series, we are doing a new series called The Next Adventure. And to get us thinking in the right direction as we start this series, I want you to think about either when you say or when you've heard someone say, that was the best decision I ever made. What we mean by that when we say that or when we hear someone say that is that we risked a yes, we decided in favor of, of doing something or going for it, we committed with really not knowing what exactly the outcome would be, whether it would be good or bad. And then looking back, the outcome of that single decision impacted our lives in the best positive way. I, I remember a moment like that, maybe you do, but I remember a moment like that when I was in college, I was coming home from a final uh, on a Friday, and I was going back uh, to where I lived, and I bumped into one of uh, my now wife's friends, Lisa, and uh, we started talking, and I remember in the conversation, I said, well, maybe I should call Chrissy. That's was her roommate and just an acquaintance at the time, and then she looked at me, and I gotta take off my glasses for this, she said, you should call her. And I kind of looked at her like this and she goes, you should call her. <laughs> I am so glad for that moment and that um, I had my thinking cap on and that I could read the signs. I think some of you guys can identify with that because I did over the Christmas break call Chrissy. And that one call changed the trajectory of my entire life. I didn't know what happened when her roommate suggested in that single moment that I call her and then me kind of deciding, okay, I'm going to call her and then me calling her that we'd be married for 35 years, just celebrated our anniversary, 35th three kids, the whole enchilada, right? Again, best decision I ever made, okay? Um, I remember my sister telling me that in seventh grade, my English teacher made a decision to call her before cell phones and called my house where the phone was on the wall and my sister had to answer and she did, and my seventh grade homeroom teacher said, would you please help your brother in school? A single moment in time, a single decision by my sister, who didn't know what it meant, but she said yes in that single moment, changed the trajectory of my life. In fact, I would have never been coming home from a final at UCLA unless Barbara Muller in that single moment asked my sister and made a call and my sister said yes to helping me in school, I would have never gotten the grades to get to UCLA and go to college and be there for that moment. So what's my point? Sometimes for better 
and sometimes for worse, the big wheels of our lives, the major adventures of our lives turn on the small axles of a single decision and a single moment in time where we could never have predicted what would unfold on the other side of risking that yes. I risked a yes in that moment to listen to my wife's roommate and make a call. Changed my life forever. My sister risked a yes to Barbara Muller to help your brother in school, which actually set up that decision that I made in college. You see, here's, here's the deal. The hope, the possibility, the wonder of what could be on the other side of risking a yes, that's what pushes us into the unknown. That's when the dominoes start to fall. That's when the arc and trajectory of our life changes. And here's the thing, you can't know it in the moment. You make that decision literally in faith and everything's about to change, right? So in this series, the Bible says that there is a next adventure, an unfolding, a life-changing uh, arc that can come into play. There's a next adventure in your relationship with God. There's a next adventure for you in your relationship with others. There's a next adventure for you in relationship, listen, to the local church you belong to. There's a next adventure in your relationship with your world, the spaces and places that you occupy right, where you live, where you work, where you pray, where you play, and the people in those environments. There's a next adventure for you in those main domains. And God is gonna invite us to make a choice. And he's hoping, and I'm praying, that you're gonna risk a yes. So let's start off in session one and talk about the next adventure in your relationship with God. And I want to start in Mark chapter four in verse 45, where Jesus just says a few words, but man, they are loaded with potential. In Mark 4.35, Jesus says, let us cross over to the other side. Just to build some context, Jesus has launched his public ministry. People are starting to follow him. More people join, join the band, right? He's recruiting men, he's reaching men, he's relating to men. Those men are relating it to their wives and their children and their families. And his popularity is beginning to soar. But as is Jesus's custom, he would say, come and see, that's for everybody. But then he would notch it up and he'd say, come and risk. And this is one of those moments in Mark 4.35 where you've got men standing on the shoreline. Jesus is in a boat teaching, right? And he issues this, this invitation, right? Let us cross over to the other side. And when Jesus issues that invitation, I just want you to put yourself on the shoreline for a second, all right? What are your choices? You have two options and two only. One, I can remain where I am, 
okay? That is option A, all right? Option B is I can risk getting in the boat with Jesus. Now, here's people following Jesus. There's people who have come and seen and kind of joined the crowd. But what does Jesus know about potential followers? Here's what he knows. They cannot become the men they need to be by remaining where they are. I'm gonna say that again. What does Jesus know when he issues this invitation that requires a decision and a risk to say yes? He knows that his followers can't become the men they need to be by remaining where they are. They need to commit to him, to the journey with him, not knowing what's next, just knowing that he is with them in the risk that they are taking, right? Now, you know who I'd hate to be? Fast forward to today. I would hate to be those guys who decided to not risk a yes on Jesus and his invitation. The guys who remained on the safety of the shore for whatever reason, they could have had a reason that made sense to them, like, I'm not getting in that boat. I'm, I, got, I got obligations, I got responsibilities. I got things I need to do. I got places I need to be. Guys who didn't realize who was issuing the invitation. Now, imagine you're one of those guys who stayed on the shore and then fast forward a few years later, one of the guys who got in the boat, he kind of circles back and they bump into each other. The guy who, sh who stood on the shore and the guy who got in the boat, right? Fast forward a couple of years later. And the guy who stayed on the shore said, oh yeah, I remember you. Yeah, you were on the shore that day. And then the guy from Nazareth, yeah, he said, let's go to the other side. And I remember I had something going on. I had something more important to do that day. You know, how'd it go when you got in the boat? And the guy who got in the boat just looks him right in the eyeball and says, you are not gonna believe what happened next. And just let's go through a little bit of what happened next. After the guys got in the boat, okay? What did they see? Because Jesus, remember, Jesus didn't say, and when you get into the boat, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. He didn't tell them what was gonna happen to inform their decision. They had to risk trusting just him and the invitation. So what happened next, right? Number one, Jesus takes command over nature, right? The guys who got in the boat, they're like, why did we get in the boat? Because they can see the swells rising, it's hitting the, the front of their boats, they think they're gonna die, and then they just see Jesus take command over nature. The wind and the waves pounding on their boats obey his name, right? Guys that stayed on the shore, they didn't get to see that. Number two, Jesus takes command over evil and demons, right? In Mark 4, 8 through 19. I mean, this is, he meets the, the guy in the cemetery and he's got 
not just one, he's got legion. He has multiple demons. And these guys who got on the boat, they see Jesus take command over nature. They see Jesus take command over evil and demons. Guys on the shore, you didn't even see that. Then they see Jesus take command, write this down, over sickness. Right? Jesus takes command over sickness in Mark 5. The hemorrhaging woman. Right? And they see him physically restore a human body that's been ailing for over three decades. Then what did they see? They see Jesus take command, listen to this, over death. All right? Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, 35 to 43. So these are the things, this was the next adventure for the guys who responded to the invitation and made a decision and risked a yes without knowing the outcome of the decision to get in the boat with Jesus, right? Now, a yes to Jesus. That's the key to this whole thing. That's the key to this whole series is it's a yes to Jesus. We say yes based on who's doing the asking. We do that in real life, you know? We say, hey, you need to be here. And then the next question might be, well, who's doing the asking? Who's asking? Who's asking for me? Someone's asking for you. Well, who's doing the asking or who's asking me to do this, right? So the key to this whole series, guys, and the, the reason I'm setting this up is that God's plan is not for you to remain who you are. In fact, he knows right now that you cannot become the man you need to be by remaining who you are and where you are. And that leads me to my next adventure fact. Write this down. There is no such thing as the safe Christian life. The Christian life was not meant to be safe. Why? Because it's a life of faith. Faith is a parable for risk. What does, what does faith mean? It means that you commit to stuff without knowing based on the person of Jesus and the word of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus. And that is not true because I say so. That fact of there's no such thing as the safe Christian life, it's because Jesus addresses this, right? Look on your notes, Mark 8, 34 and 35. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Listen, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Do you see Jesus addressing the tension? Whoever wants to save their life, control their life make it predictable, right? Not take a risk. Guess what? Those people don't go on the next adventure and they end up losing their life. Why? Because fear and safety win versus faith and the next adventure. And then he says, but whoever loses their life, right? Whoever lets go, whoever risks a yes for me, Jesus says, and for the sake of the gospel will save it. All right, so Jesus actually addresses this tension as we follow him, and it's this process of Jesus issuing invitations for us 
to risk a yes based on who he is and what he says. Now, the big wheels of God move on the small axles of our choices we're seeing in the moment, all right? Look at what it says in Hebrews 10, 38 and 39. It says this, my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Okay, again, the big wheels of God move on the small axles of our faith decisions in a moment based on who he is and what he says, and that he has us. So you heard our next adventure fact, no such thing as the safe Christian life. Here's the next adventure question that we all have to confront, and it's this. What does leaving the shore and getting in the boat with Jesus mean for me? Write that down. The next adventure question, what does leaving the shore and getting in the boat with Jesus mean for me? And that's what we're gonna explore in session one, right? That's all just background. It's God's mind on our relationship with him, how he works with us, and he starts issuing invitations and saying things, and we gotta risk getting in the boat. We gotta risk a yes on him, and that's when the adventure begins. That's when the relationship with Jesus becomes meaningful, all right? In fact, on your notes, you'll see in this next section, God is saying, adventure more with me and shrink less. That's based on that Hebrew passage. You should adventure more with me, right? And shrink back less, why? For this relationship, all right? So let's spell out what it means to spiritually risk, okay? The R in risk, write this down means have a right view of me. God is saying, have a right view of me and you will risk, right? What does that mean to risk? It means intelligent abandon in the direction of a strong hope. And our strongest hope that causes us to risk with intelligent abandon is having a right view of God. Listen to what the Bible says. Do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. What I love about the Bible is that it juxtaposes who God is and where he is and who we are and where, where we are, right? God is in heaven, you are on earth, okay? And that loads in a certain degree of reverence and humility, right? You wanna go on the next adventure in your relationship with God, all right? You gotta let God be God in your own life. What does that mean, right? It means that he's the creator and you're the created and he has an intention for you. It means that he's the shepherd and you're the sheep and he's in charge of leading you. He's the potter, you're the clay, he's in charge of shaping you, right? 
He's the vine, you're the branch, your job is to depend on the vine, right? Because he's the vine and you're the branch. He's the teacher, you're the student, right? The student becomes like the teacher. He's the master, you're the servant, right? The servant obeys the master. He is the precious treasure. You're just the jar of clay. You're the holder of that precious treasure. Right? So the emphasis is on the treasure, not the jar, right? Do you see, when we have a right view of God, right? when we let God be God in our own lives, right? Now God can lead us properly. He can lead us in to that next adventure. So when you have a right view of God, you know what it's an adventure in? Write this down. It's an adventure in humility with God. When you let God be God, when you have a right view of God, when he's creator, you're created. When he's shepherd, you're sheep. When he's potter and you're clay. When he's vine and you're a branch. When he's the teacher and you're the student. When he's the master and you're the servant. When he's the precious treasure and you're the jar of clay, that builds in instant humility, right? That's why the Bible teaches this is who God is and this is who you are. And the guiding force in who he is and who you are is that this person, the person in the B position, God is always in the A position. There's a huge gap between A and B. That, that means instant humility. And humility is required to go on the next adventure with God. That's why it says in 1 Peter 5, 6, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up, right, in due time, right? James 4, 7, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? That's how the relationship with God works. So the R in risk is have a right view of me. That's what God is saying. You want to adventure more with me? Have a right view with me. Secondly, God is saying, you want to adventure more with me? Have your identity settled in me. Jesus would reiterate this, this theme of identity, and he would always talk about the war for where men would get their identity. Would they, they get it in the world, through the world, through the identities offered in the world, or would they get it through their relationship with him? Listen to him talk in John 15, 19, and, and, and address this. Jesus says, quote, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. See, what, what he's saying is, if your identity was in the world, right, you'd be free. There'd be no tension. There'd be no risk, right? Why? Because you'd be holy over here. Okay, but now because Jesus has chosen them out of the world and all the identities that they could have over here, right? He's plucked them out and now they are in Christ. They're not in the world anymore. Now there's this tension, all right? Whereas before they were in Christ, right? And they were over here, 
there's freedom in choosing all the worldly things. It's all the worldly identities, the power identity, the possession identity, the pleasure identity, hedonism, narcissism, materialism, all those ways of being and believing and behaving that the world offers out here that are godless and without Christ. Now they're over here. So now that they're in Christ, now they're at war, right? And so the world hates the follower of Christ. The godless world hates the follower of Christ. That's why Jesus says, hey, if you were still over there, the world would love you. But now that you're with me, now you're experiencing this tension and the world doesn't love you so much. In fact, you're off the list now because you love me in many ways. And you should just make your peace with the fact that you belong to me now and I've chosen you out of the world. Now, there's a, there's a, a phrase that I got to know through a wonderful Haitian preacher. And the phrase is this, all for all, some for some, none for none, right? And let me explain what that means. All for all, some for some, none for none. For the disciple of Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a calculation. You give nothing of yourself to Jesus, guess what you get in return? Nothing. You give some of yourself to Jesus, and you, what do you get in return? Some of Jesus. You give all of yourself to Jesus, and you get all back in the relationship, but it's a risk. You have to push all your chips to the center of the table and say, my identity, my way of being, my way of believing, my way of behaving, it's all in over here, right? And when Jesus says, right, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, it's, it's both a fact and it's an explanation. The fact is, is that if you have believed in the person and work of Christ, you are what the Bible calls in Christ. Boom. That's who you are. You're a child of God, right? You're not on any other team anymore, right? You're a child of God. But what Jesus is saying is there's a battle, and the battle is this. You're going you're gonna to be tempted to blend the world's way with your identity in Christ. And what Jesus is, is saying, what he's explaining is that culture and the values of culture, the identities that are in culture that are godless are at odds with your relationship with Christ. So I want you to hear a couple passages of scripture that address this, right? Luke 6:46 says this, this is Jesus talking. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Right? What does it look like, you know, when you become a follower of Jesus? Well, what it looks like is, is that our life, our thinking, our living comes together and our identity in Christ matches our activity, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Okay, there's the identity piece, which is I'm identified. Jesus is saying, you identify with me. And then he points out the disconnect for him and do not do what I say. So there's identity, but does our activity reflect our truest identity, right? It's just like, you know, a player that gets traded, right? The contract gets bought, right? New team, new playbook, 
New contract. Can I just say, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith and trust in his person and work, you have a new contract with God. It's now with God and the one with the world is over. Your contract was paid for in blood. New team, new playbook, right? No professional team who buys the contract of a player would expect the player to run the plays and wear the uniform of the previous team, right? Does that make sense? So number one, you're gonna start, if your identity is settled in God, you're gonna start living with more spiritual integrity, right? Your identity and your activity in that new identity is gonna start seeking up. But secondly, you're gonna start living out your truest identity. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So there's the, the follow-up to draft day. When God drafted you on the team, when he wooed you to be God's man, new team, new playbook, new contract, you said yes. You became a child of God and started becoming a man of God. This defined your yeses and nos. You see, when we risk the right view of God, right? That's an adventure in humility. When we risk settling our identity in him, write this down. That's the adventure of integrity with God. When you settle on your truest identity, right? You live with more spiritual integrity. Like this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is my playbook, this is the team I'm on. God wants me to have the family resemblance and participate in discipleship, which is becoming more like Christ, right? You, you begin to see more spiritual integrity where it's less of the world, more of the word. Less influence of culture, more influence of Christ. So that's the R in risk and the I in risk. What's the S in risk, right? To go on your next adventure in your relationship with God. The S stands for say yes to becoming like Christ. When I have a right view of God, when my identity is settled in him, I'm gonna start saying yes to becoming like Christ. Now, why is that important? That's the definition of discipleship. The disciplines that we do, connecting with guys, reading the Bible, having a group, prayer, solitude, um, service, simplicity, um, Sabbath, those disciplines, that's not discipleship. Those disciplines create space for discipleship to happen. What's discipleship? It's becoming like Christ, right? Listen to Romans 8.29. This is God's highest mission and noblest goal for you. It says this, quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, us, in other words, this is the number one vision for you in God's mind. This is the number one mission for God's man. Don't make Christianity complicated. Christianity is a process of salvation, believing in the person and work of Christ, and transformation, 
Character transformation, right? Becoming like him. Talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3. It says this, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, listen, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Wow. How do we do that? How do we change more and more into his glorious image? Well, we create spaces and practice spiritual disciplines that moves God's process forward, right? That doesn't, this, this process of being transformed into his glorious image, being conformed to Jesus' image from the inside out, that doesn't happen through mystical osmosis. You know, it's like, oh, it just happens to me. No, it happens through disciplined relationship, just like all personal change happens through disciplined relationship, right? There's time, there's talk, there's investment in the relationship, there's instruction in the relationship, there's priorities in the relationship, there's learning in the relationship. So the disciplines that we have, right, where we intentionally create spaces for relationship, right? That's what conforms us and transforms us. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to make us more like Jesus. It's so important that we get this right that I put in the notes the definition of discipleship and I wanna read it. Discipleship is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus Christ in character, attitude, and behavior through the power of the Holy Spirit and personal effort in the context of relationship with other believers. Now there you have the whole vision and goal of the Christian life. We got a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus in our character, our attitude, and when our character transforms and becomes more like his, our conduct changes, our behavior changes. How does that happen? Through the power of God's spirit that came inside of you at salvation. That's the whole mission of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that God pours the spirit of his son into our hearts. Galatians 4, 6, Romans 5, 5. Comes in to do what? To conform us, to make us more and more like Jesus. Where? on the inside, in our character, right? And then what does that character lead to? Conduct, right? And we do this in the context of a relationship with God and a relationship with, with other people. It's essential. That's why at every man we emphasize, right? Get into relationship with God, get into community with other men. That's what it means to get in. Now the process can truly start. Now. Just as when you have, when you risk a right view of, of God, that's an adventure in humility. And just like when you settle your identity firmly in him, that's an adventure in integrity. What's the adventure when you say yes to becoming like Christ? Write this down. It's the adventure of changing from the inside out. Man, I tell you, I am not the man I used to be. Can anybody agree with that? Can I get an amen? I am not who I used to be, right? The boy became a man, and that doesn't have anything to do with my age. It has to do with my character. See, God's not concerned as much with your comfort, fellas. 
He's super concerned with your character, right? Boys want comfort. Men need character. Why? Because it takes character to make the hard decisions. It takes character to say no to yourself and yes to God. It takes character to say no to yourself and yes to the people that he has placed in your life. It takes character, right? The real stuff on the inside to say no to the world and say yes to the world, all like Jesus did. And God wants you to be just like him, all right? So right view of God, identity settled in God. This is how you go on the next adventure. You say yes to becoming like Christ. And then lastly, the K in risk is kingdom advance in me and through me, right? When, we, when we're thinking about God, right? When we're pushing all our chips to the, to the center of the table and saying my truest identity, right, is in God. I'm fully defined right, by this relationship, right, and I am pursuing integrity in that identity. When I say, yes, Lord, make me more like Jesus. I'm all about discipleship. I wanna become like Jesus on the inside. That work in the inner man, in your thinking, in your identity, right, in your character process, that happens in you to then come out of you, right? Now, Jesus paints two simple pictures of this in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. He says this, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Okay, so in, in other words, God's gonna work out of you what he's worked into you. And he gives two really simple pictures of this, of how it gets worked out. Right? Now I want you to listen really closely. The first is salt. And the way it gets worked out with salt is by contact. We are salt by contact, right? Salt has to contact things, right? And when it contacts things, it influences things, right? If, if we just pick up a, a thing of salt on our dining room table or at a restaurant, which happens every day, all the time, billions of times, right? What does salt do? It draws out the flavor, right? That's what we do. When we're sprinkled into a situation, we draw out God's purposes in a situation. Salt also preserves. In the first century, if you were listening to Jesus say, you're salt, they would, some people would think, oh, that, that's what we shake onto food and it adds flavor, it draws out the flavor. Other people would go, no, that's, that's like our modern day refrigerator. In the first century, there were no refrigerators, no electricity, no refrigerators. So how did they preserve food? Well, they cure it with salt, okay? And, and sometimes God, by contact, puts you into a situation to preserve righteousness, to preserve justice, to preserve and protect people, right? You're salt. 
Other people would think of salt as currency. In Jesus' day, they paid Roman soldiers, not with money, but with salt. Salt was that valuable because it did so many things. That's actually where we get the word salary, by the way, um, is from the word salt, right? Because it was a currency. So if you're a currency, that means that you're a valuable commodity. You're so valuable. God controls, and the Romans in the first century controlled the distribution of salt, just like we control the flow of currency and real money. Why? Because it's a valuable commodity. So God doesn't mess around where he puts you his valuable salt. You're a commodity that just can't be spilled out everywhere. He has to strategically put you and assign a value to you and put you in, in that situation. Salt also, some people would have interpreted that as, as judgment. Because in, in the Old Testament, many times salt would be used as an instrument of judgment. Um, uh, a country would defeat its enemy, it would salt the fields of its enemy, burn salt, it's a, it's a picture of judgment. Sometimes as salt, we're, we're called in, in the righteous character of Christ to judge evil and to take action against it. Now for others who were listening to that, they could have thought that salt meant, oh, covenant. There's a covenant of salt, right? Which is a, a pattern in practice and uh, culturally in the Old Testament. People would ratify agreements um, with salt. In fact, today, um, in the Middle East, you can still hear people say, there's salt between us. That means we're, we're in agreement, okay? So that's just salt, right, by contact. And that could have some different expressions. But then he says that your light, and light isn't by contact, light's by contrast. That's the picture. And um, he says, you know what? You're the light of the world. And in the first century, Light was precious. Light, uh, when it came on, it wasn't like us using our phones or just flipping switches. There are switches everywhere. You know, there's light in the car, there's light in my house, there's light in my phone, there's, I mean, there's, there's light everywhere. Back then, when Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, instead a lamp is placed on its stand. So the idea was, man, that precious light it has to go to this optimal place. And in the first century, when it got dark, because there was no ambient light or street lights or anything, it was inky black, right? Again, no lights in the home, no lights in the yard. You light a lamp, you put it on a stand. It's its optimal space. Remember that. Light in an optimal space, right? Strategic to do what? To shine out to illuminate, right? God, listen, man of God, God has put you in your optimal spot. Where you are on the planet, the family he's put you in, the people you're connected to, the workplace, that is all your lampstand. You're in your optimal spot. To do what? To shine out the light of God the character of Jesus into the spaces and places where he has put you, his light. That word shine out, that's the Greek word lampsado. 
It means to, to let out. There's a power. When you flick on a light, there's a power, right? It, it's a power of illumination. Now, you're the true light. There's a lot of false light out there. Jesus is the true light. Jesus in you is the true light. A lot of false light out there, right? So the R is God saying, have a right view of me, and you will participate in the next adventure in your relationship with God. Settle your identity in me, and you will participate in the next adventure in your relationship with God. Say yes to God's process of becoming like Christ, and you will change from the inside out, and you will go on the next adventure in your relationship with God. Right? Let the kingdom of God advance in you and then come through you and be who Jesus says you are in the spaces and places he has put you. You're going to be salt and you're going to be light. What adventure is involved there? That is the adventure, listen, write this down, of overflowing for God's glory. The first three letters, R, I, and S, that's an inner thing, but now that all comes out and you start overflowing for God's glory. So that is the next adventure in your relationship with God. And here's a promise. If you commit to risk more and shrink back less and adventure with God more, let him be God, settle your identity, say yes to becoming like Christ, and then let what's inside of you come out of you, advancing the kingdom of God through you as salt and light. Right? Here's the promise. It says this in Psalm 37, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. It's right there on your notes. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Now, remember what I said? about all for all, some for some, and none for none. Give none of your life to God, right? Stay on the shore, right? Get none of his life, right? Give some of your life, you know? 80, 20, 70, 30, right? You get some of God's life. You give all your life to Jesus and his process and his ways, you get all the life of God. Now, I know that's what you want. And I know some of you are watching this. You're like, yes, that's what I want. Well, if that's you, then pray with me right now. Jesus, we don't want to be men who when you issue the invitation for a relationship and to risk knowing you more, loving you more, and serving you more, we don't want to be those men who stay on the shore. But Lord, just forgive us for having a wrong view of you. In fact, forgive us for pretending mistakenly that somehow we're the creator of our own universes, that somehow we're the shepherd and leader of our own lives, that somehow we're the supplier of power and the vine, that we're the teacher, that we're the master that we are the precious treasure. Nah, Lord, 
There's only one person who belongs in that place, and that's you. And so we confess now that we are the created ones, that we're the sheep, that we're the branch, that we're the students, that we're the servants, and that we're the jars of clay, holding what is precious. Jesus, today we settle it. We're settling it with you, settling our identity in you. That's our truest identity. And we don't want the world, the flesh, or the devil to rob us or dilute or pollute that identity. God, we want to call you Lord, Lord, and we want to do what you say. We want to be a man of God, which means that we're going to flee from the things of the world and we're going to pursue righteousness. We're going to pursue godliness. We're going to pursue faith. We're going to pursue love. We're going to pursue endurance in our love for you and gentleness. We're gonna fight that good fight of faith. We're gonna take hold of that eternal life that we received and were called to when we confessed Christ. God, we're gonna say yes, not just to confessing you, Jesus, but to becoming like you. That is the process. So Jesus, help us to become more like you every day through the power of the Holy Spirit. And help us to create spaces, Holy Spirit, for you to take those disciplines that of reading your word and of prayer and fellowship and study and discipleship, Lord, take those disciplines and make us more like Jesus. Use the fuel we give you because we want to change from the inside out. And Lord, when you make those changes, when you change us in that we become more like Jesus, Lord, let Jesus that has come in me and changed me go through me in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we embrace the identity that you have given to us, that we are salt by contact and that we are light by contrast. Help us to draw out the kingdom of God in the spaces and places that we are in right now today and help us to be light by contrast, so that everyone will see our good deeds shining out and they will praise your name. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's men around the world said, amen. Whoa, that's so cool to think that tens of thousands of you are gonna light up and risk the next adventure with Jesus. Invite a friend back for next week, and we'll see you for part two.